If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The, the statistic that the meteorologists love to talk about is a day a decade, which is to say that their models have improved um, by a day of accuracy with each passing decade. So a, a five-day forecast today is as good as a four-day forecast was 10 years ago, is as good as a three-day forecast was 20 years ago. And that's a trend that just keeps continuing. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Hurricane Sandy hit the east coast of the United States in October 2012, causing $65 billion of damage. Remarkably, weather forecasters managed to predict its impact on the US eight days in advance, when it was barely even a storm. How did forecasts get so good? It's a story that begins with the invention of the telegraph and ends with supercomputers. We talked to Andrew Bloom, author of The Weather Machine, about the history of weather forecasting, why we shouldn't trust the icons on our weather apps, and whether we'll ever have an accurate minute-by-minute forecast. Here's Andrew talking to BBC Science Focus online assistant, Sarah Rigby. So what made you want to write a book about meteorology? Well, I'm, I've always been interested in these sort of complex, technical, sort of big infrastructure systems. Uh, and um, weather was definitely one of those. I was very curious about where the weather forecast came from. And, but more than that, I was really surprised that there had been this kind of paradigm shift in how the forecast worked. And I hadn't really heard much about it. Uh, it seemed that it was no longer about the skills of meteorologists, the kind of human intuition, but rather it was about the sort of incremental improvement in the, the technology of the weather models, these sort of supercomputers that are at the heart of weather forecasting today. Um, but they were also kind of a black box. I wasn't really sure sort of how to get inside and understand these sort of incredibly complex systems and sort of began to sort of poke around, especially after um, after Hurricane Sandy in the United States. It was really a moment where the models uh, worked astonishingly well. And I think everyone started to say, wow, what, what was this thing that we had created? Yeah, so in your book, you say um, that they could have, they predicted Hurricane Sandy something like eight days before it actually happened. Is that right? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the storm came to New York uh, on a Monday evening, and the first inkling of it um, was the previous Sunday afternoon um, when the weather model sort of first spit out this possibility um, that this, this pretty substantial hurricane would, would, would sort of take a left turn towards New York City. And at, at that far out, it wasn't a sure thing. Um, but with each passing day, it became clear that um, that this was actually going to happen. And it turned out that, yes, that eight-day forecast was correct. It was really sort of, you know, sort of sort of boggled the mind that this was possible. 
Right. So um, you said that uh, it was before it had even really started to take shape, right? So how could they um, how could they predict it so far in advance? Uh, well, it's of course, it's not something that any human can sort of look at a map and figure out. Um, but the way that the models work sort of fundamentally is to run an ongoing simulation of the atmosphere that's based in the laws of physics that goes back to, to equations that were that were sort of first drawn up uh, more than 100 years ago, um, starting with a Norwegian meteorologist named Wilhelm Björknes. And of course, at the time, there was no way to calculate those equations, um, and they wouldn't even sort of tell you what the weather would be. Um, but in this kind of amazing iterative process, um, you know, year by year, month by month, of scientists sort of trying out different things and testing it each day um, on what the weather actually turns out to be, um, we've really kind of made incredible progress. The the sort of um the the statistic that the meteorologists love to talk about is a day a decade, which is to say that their models have improved um, by a day of accuracy with each passing decade. So a a five day forecast today is as good as a four day forecast was ten years ago, is as good as a three day forecast was twenty years ago, and that's a trend that just keeps continuing. Wow. So um, the invention of these these models must have been really um a really big moment in meteorology. And another one of those that you talk about in your book is the invention of the telegraph. Can you explain a bit about how that had such a big uh, influence on weather forecasting, please? Yeah, I mean, it's the fundamentally, it's about being able to to, to hear about the weather someplace else um, before um, faster than the weather actually arrives. Um, so I just, I love this notion that there, you know, it requires a kind of, a, you know, a sort of geographic leap of the imagination um, to know uh, what's happening, um, you know, at a distance. And that's the kind of sort of root of all telecommunications. But one of the first uses of the telegraph was to, was to, was to you know, to tap out ahead of what, you know, what storms were coming. And it could only be a sort of rudimentary forecast. You know, it couldn't, it couldn't, the, the um, meteorologists of the time had no theory. They sort of couldn't, couldn't really predict how the weather might evolve. Um, but they finally had this ability to, 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 to send news faster than a, than, a, than, a, than, a, than a horse or a train could carry it. So what would you say were the really important moments in the history of meteorology, the ones that really sort of changed the, the direction of how we forecast the weather? Um, well, certainly it, it does begin with the telegraph. It does begin with this idea that you could, uh, by sort of communicating over distance, assemble a, a, a synoptic map, a sort of you know coherent map of the weather at a given moment in many places in time. And of course, going knowing the weather in many places at one time is the first step towards knowing the weather in many places at different times, specifically into the future. That's the, the most the, the most the most helpful time to know the weather. Um, and I think the, the the next step would be um, the the uh, the the sketching of the primitive equations as 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 they came to be known um, by Wilhelm Björknes, a Norwegian meteorologist, and that was you know they were based on sort of the the, the advancements of classical physics and thermodynamics in the 19th century, um, but he really sort of said not so much that the equations were were they 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 turned out to work, but the sort of bigger insight was just the the sort of scientific hypothesis of it. That you could, if you if you could 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 describe the 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 sky with math, then you could sort of prove each day, um, with what with, you know if it was actually doing what you what you thought it was going to be doing, and I think sort of that notion of sort of you know turning the meteorology into a science, uh, rather than purely empirical but actually theoretical, was a major step. And after that, uh, what it really took to enact those, it was another 50, 60 years. It took the global view that weather satellites allowed, you know, so that you to have a, a, a global map of the weather, you really need global data. And for really, you know, consistent global data, you really need that sort of view from space. 
And then, of course, it took it took computers. It took the ability to calculate those those um those equations. Um, many people know the the famous story of Lewis Fry Richardson, um, who tried to essentially use Bjerknes's equations to to calculate the weather in the you know uh, over World War One and into the into the 1920s. Uh, he was famously wrong, and it famously took him uh, you know <laughs> it took him weeks to calculate the equations, and figured he could do it faster if he had a, a could fill a stadium with tens of thousands of human calculators. And of course, we don't have that today, but we do have the super supercomputing power, and really the bleeding edge of supercomputing power is what's applied um, to the to the most active weather models. So, what is it that supercomputers do differently um, in terms of forecasting the weather than traditional human meteorologists would do? Well, I think the the number of, of variables required um, to run an ongoing simulation of the atmosphere is really the crux of it. And I think there's a sort of a, 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 a misconception that the weather models are, are statistical, that they take past weather and from past weather extrapolate future weather. And that's not entirely the, the right way of thinking about it. It's not as if the you know, the observations go in and, you know, it's compared against any sort of any any past state of the atmosphere and the, the most likely future state is spit out. Instead, it's kind of an ongoing concern. It's an ongoing simulation of the atmosphere uh, that's compared against the latest observations. I like to kind of imagine as sort of sort of two globes kind of side by side, clicking ahead in parallel. You have the kind of, you have the atmosphere inside the computer, and then you have the real atmosphere. And with each step, uh, the sort of the most recent observations are compared uh, to the most recent forecast of the model, and it's corrected slightly, you know, almost like a almost like a like a duet. So that there's the real atmosphere and there's the simulated atmosphere. And uh, and you know, with each run of these supercomputer models, they 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 try to they 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 bring they're they're brought closer together, and then of course the model then runs days into the future, uh, giving us the the weather forecast that we know. But I just love this notion that in a way the 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 model the, the atmosphere inside the model is sort of more precise than the real atmosphere because we know it better. You know, we can we can sort of pick a single point and say yes, these are the conditions at that point. Where, of course, um, in the real atmosphere, we can only do that for the places where we have actual observations. Can you please explain to us um, what the different types of forecast are? For example, uh, the differences between local and global forecasts. Yeah, um, I think that the, well, it's interesting. I mean, one distinction to draw is the difference between forecasts and weather models. Um, I think that the forecast is a sort of uh, what, what you extrapolate from the model. Um, the model is just that. It's a, a model of the atmosphere, which could come out of either a global model, which sort of models the entire atmosphere of the Earth, or it could come out of a regional model, which is often a higher resolution, you know, likely to resolve things like thunderstorms better, um, or um, and also it's likely to be refreshed more often because the, it's, you know, it takes less computing power to, to calculate a regional model than a global model. Um, so you you sort of you end up with a kind of hierarchy of models where you have the global models, especially um, the sort of king of models, as, as meteorologists like to refer to it, is the uh, the one that's operated by the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, um, which is the, the sort of pan European um, operation that at the moment is located in, in, in Reading in England. Um, but for that, it, the the where it excels is is with is with days or or even a week into the future. Um, because at that scale, it really does depend on on a, a sort of a, a holistic, a complete view of the atmosphere. But to know whether or not, for example, there are going to be thunderstorms in New York this afternoon, um, it becomes more important to have a higher resolution or regional model. And so it's it's really it's it's a it's about having a sort of a, a range of tools available. And the the key point, of course, you know, no forecast is 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 worthwhile unless we can act upon it. 
Um, and so for, for, for meteorologists whose job it is to sort of communicate to us what the weather will be and, and ways in which we, 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 we might adjust our behavior, whether to get out of danger or to do something simple like, you know, plan a picnic or bring an umbrella. Um, I think that that sort of ability to kind of switch between these different models, between regional models that are more focused on the shorter range time periods and between global models that are that really excel at at, at longer range time periods uh, is sort of crucial for making this this system as effective as I think it's become in our lives. I see. So um, would you say that um, sort of the rise of the Internet and smartphones had an impact on weather forecasting? Yeah, it's it's a it certainly had an impact in the way that we receive it. Um, I write in in my book about uh, about weather underground, um, which is one of the sort of called a skin of the weather company, uh, which is sort of one of the 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 sort of the the um the the service that that provides forecasts not only for their own apps and for the Weather Channel, but also for Google and Facebook and and I think the numbers several billion, several billion forecasts that they deliver each day, and. F- what they discovered is that when with the rise of smartphones in the last ten years, uh, it became you know people wanted their forecast more often, um, and they wanted it to be more geographically precise, uh, because no longer were they sort of listening to the forecasts on the radio in the morning, but they were often checking it where they were you know o- over the course of the day, and so that really changed the way that they began to think about serving up those forecasts. So rather than having a a sort of um a, you know the here here's what the weather is going to be in 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 the New York City area for the day. Uh, they div- they built a system that they call their forecasting engine that sort of dips back into the data each time you each time you refresh your app and gives you the the latest the the, the latest most likely conditions um, by by drawing on a, the kind of um, the combined outputs of a whole range of weather models operated by the different sort of national government weather services and I think that that hierarchy is really important to to to, to make you know between the the sort of the ongoing models, the ongoing simulations of the atmosphere run by the weather services, and the different the different weather meteorologists, whether at a, at a at a place like the Met Office or the BBC or or at a company like the like um like Weather Underground or the Weather Company, that really draw upon those models to then to then then deliver to us a forecast. So the weather app that comes with my phone is quite useless. It predicts thunderstorms far more frequently than actually happen here. But I know that you know, for example, if I wanted to. Um, a really good weather forecast, I, I would might go to the BBC or the Met Office or something like that. So why is it that um, some weather forecasts can be so much better than others? Well, I think a lot of it is the way in which those little icons are sort of tuned. <laughs> you know, I think that they're, you know, I think there's a definitely a bias um, for the app makers to 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 to, to um, predict rain when it's not going to rain, uh, then rather than let you get stuck in the rain. So when you think about how these things are working, there, you know, the models are saying there's a there's a, a, a certain likelihood um, of a storm forming, um, but at what point um, in the kind of uh, you know iconographic delivery of that information do we change the icon from a from a sun or a cloud to a to a to a rain cloud or to a thunderstorm? And I think the bias is going to be towards tipping that over um, sooner rather than later for a for a consumer app. So it's funny. I um, one of the things that I like about the Weather Underground app, which uses the exact same data as, for example, the the, the Weather Channel's app, or even Apple's Weather app, um, or the Weather on on Facebook, is that it kind of it, it assumes that you're a bit of a weather geek, um, so it's less likely to sort of tip over into that next icon. But for me, it's a kind of perfect example that that often it's not it's it's not the it's not the model that's wrong. Uh, it's the it's the sort of communication that's the challenge. And I think that that's indicative of of how hard it's been for 
um, all of us, and particularly for people who have big decisions like, um, you know, like uh, closing schools when there's snow, um, or you know, evacuating people, you know, when there's a when there's a, a, a typhoon coming, that sort of evolution to 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 trusting the quality of the forecast that we're getting. Um, there's still an inclination to sort of second guess it, um, and I think that you know we're starting to see a lot of examples where you know where where major decisions are being made that are have sort of you know life saving you know real real life saving consequences, because not only is the weather forecast good, but it's really good enough that we've learned to trust it. Um, so I think I think I think that is that is definitely the trend. I mean, certainly it's not not always perfect, but. I think if we kind of learn to recognize the moments that the forecast is saying maybe, you know, it might rain, uh, you know, it's not saying, you know, sometimes it says it's definitely going to rain. Sometimes it says it's definitely not going to rain, but sometimes it says maybe. Uh, and that's actually a pretty good forecast when you think about it. So, yes, you say that um, it's important to be able to interpret the weather data correctly as well as just having all the data. So would you say that as as good as computers can be, we're still going to need the, the human element to meteorology? We're still going to need the, the interpretation? Yeah, absolutely, and and that's that's a big a sort of big trend that's happening uh, slowly but but decidedly in meteorology right now. That meteorologists are realizing that they they don't need to spend their time sort of um you know looking at the weather maps and just you know sort of you know deciding whether or not it's going to be uh, if you know seventy three degrees or seventy six degrees tomorrow that the computer is better at that. Um, but in terms of predicting impacts, in terms of predicting uh, what the weather is going to do uh, to to, the, to to all of us, you know, what what kind of traffic it's going to cause, what kind of you know ice might be on the roads, uh, you know, you know what kind of snow might build up or or or, or, or flooding there might be on the coast. Uh, in order to do that, that's still where where humans excel. So it 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 shifts it shifts the job. Um, it, it's the the sort of term for it is in, in, impact based forecasting. Um, and uh, I think there's a bit of a there's a bit of a letting go that has to happen on the part of meteorologists to to acknowledge that um, that their role has shifted that it's not as much about the analysis that they might have been trained in particularly 20 or 30 years ago that in fact the computer is much better at that now but what we still really need them for is the communication of those outputs and the sort of understanding of how of what the impacts might be particularly when it when it creates different kinds of dangers or inconveniences. So these forecasting models have been getting better and better over the last decades, as you say. They've been getting um, one day better every year, every decade. Um, so what is it that gets improved about the models? How can you go about making forecast more accurate? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's complicated. And I've kind of divided into sort of three different categories of improvement. Um, there's one, the first category would be improvement in the observations, you know, how you know you need to know what the state of the atmosphere is to know what the state of the atmosphere will be. Um, so new satellites, um, more weather observations on land, uh, different kinds of sort of new generation of observations, things like um, your the barometer on your cell phone, um, taking recordings and sending them back through the app or Amazing system called um, GPSRO that that uses GPS signals to sort of to measure the conditions of the atmosphere. Um, all of those things um, are sort of one of of one of the three legs of the stool. Um, the second leg is sort of even broader, and it's the kind of science of it. Um, it's you know what are the way you know what what are the algorithms that make the models work, and how well do they describe the evolution of the atmosphere? You know how well do the algorithms say you know when certain conditions are going to make rain inside the model? You know how well do they do they do they predict the temperature? And you have to you know picture this in, in incredible you know three dimensional or really four dimensional grid. Um, of the conditions of the atmosphere inside the model um, that relies on the the sort of the the, the the hundreds of millions of equations to to see how it'll evolve, 
And that kind of brings us to the, the third leg of the stool, which of course is supercomputers. And I think there's a, you know, inclination to say, well, if only we had, you know, better, you know, faster computers, we would have better weather models. But it really is these sort of these these three things working in concert, um, the better observations, um, you know, better science, better algorithms that describe the atmosphere, and then better supercomputers to crunch it all together. And um, yeah, you know, the, the the metaphor that I that I sort of came to somewhat resignedly in the time that I spent at the the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, watching them try to improve the model, uh, was the sort of cockpit of a 747. You know, there there's just they're constantly sort of spinning dials and adjusting levers and starting new programs to try and figure out, um, you know, what what could make it better. Um, but because um, they can sort of run the model in different ways, because they can can use some of their computing power to, to experiment, to try different things, and because the weather tomorrow always comes and they always have observations for the next day, um, it really is like this daily science, science experiment that they sort of tweak and tweak and tweak and, and iterate. And I think it is that ability to, to test these different improvements against the weather that actually comes that's been so crucial um, and has to, to to improving the the models year by year. Um, it really, you know, there's very sort of concrete way of saying, did this work or did this not work? So meteorology is um, it's a bit different to most other sciences, isn't it? In that they've got this such vast wealth of data and they don't need to sort of go out and get it. It's always coming into them. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, especially as a prediction problem. I mean, you know, if you're in the business of, you know, prediction, predicting elections, for example, uh, you don't you don't get to do it that often. You know, you don't you don't you don't have a whole lot of data to use. Um, but as um as one um one scientist in the book put it put it to me, you know, the, who I write about uh, you, um, a guy named Jeff Anderson in, in Boulder, Colorado, one of the sort of ex- world experts on this. You know, it's really you know meteorology is special because you know you can you can you can you can sort of make a hypothesis about how you think it's going to behave, and then you can be proven right or wrong tomorrow. And then not only that, but you can go back and sort of you know punch it up, punch, you know you know, punch it in with the past 20 years of weather data. And in fact, that's how the modeling systems are set up. Um, they, they have the ability to sort of, you know, make forecasts from from the sort of the data record, um, you know, again, inside the simulation. You know, I, I think um, we're recording this on uh, the anniversary of D-Day. And, and I, I think of there, there was a, a they, they went back and they used the observations that they could collect um, from the lead up to D-Day. And they put them into the existing weather model, the the sort of current version of the weather model, and so they using the then were able to get a pretty good forecast. Um, so it's 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 wild to think about that ability to to sort of you know scrub forward and backward in time, uh, both for research purposes, um, but then also in this way that that shows up in our pocket. Uh, that's the sort of most accessible information as there is. Right. Yeah. So we'll we ever realistically be able to get a perfect minute-by-minute forecast, or is that just out of the bounds of human possibility? I, um, well, uh, the European Centre has set the goal um, uh, not only of adding a day a decade, but of increasing the rate of that improvement. Um, and that's not a perfect forecast. That's a kind of sort of you know incremental measure of skill. You know, it's a it's a it's saying that 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 we want to be better than 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 we would be just by saying predicting the weather that there was the year before. Um, so you know, again, it's sort of the the way that I prefer to think about it is less the sort of perfect minute by minute forecast, and more a forecast that's really good enough to act on. Um, I've been joking with um, my daughter plays softball, and and we've been joking with the other with the other parents about you know well is it gonna is it gonna rain on Sunday morning or is it not gonna rain on Sunday morning, and you know 
often, uh, you know, week by week, you know, by Tuesday or Wednesday, the forecast has been right. Um, you know, yes, it's going to rain. No, it's not going to rain. And, and that, you know, it's, it's that, that becomes good enough. Um, you know, we don't quite want to make decisions, you know, four or five days in advance yet. Um, but a lot of times if we did make decisions four or five days in advance, uh, we would have been right. Those would have been good decisions. Um, so that, that's pretty remarkable, pro- it's pretty remarkable progress. Um, and I think that there really is this kind of delay, uh, in trusting it. Um, and, and again, part of the sort of, uh, net, you know, the ability to trust it requires knowing when it's not sure. And that's a, that's a kind of uncomfortable position to be in. And I think that's a particularly uncomfortable position for the people who, who make weather apps and for meteorologists to, to really say, you know, you know, this one is really, I'm really sure about it. And this forecast, I'm not really sure about it at all. So you should be a bit more careful. Right. Okay. So do you think, um, it's more valuable to have, a forecast further in advance, an, an accurate forecast further in advance, rather than a perfect forecast now. When is now? I guess would be the, you know, with the, um, you, you mean, um, you know, is it uh, for the better next to day or so? For the next day, again, it kind of depends what you're using it for. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this again as I sort of, sort of, you know, you know, you know, cheer on the the work of the weather modelers and the success that they've had. You know, when when is it really actionable? You know, when and and often one of the great frustrations is, you know, even if the forecast is perfect, that doesn't mean you're gonna like the weather. You know, if you're if you're if you're planning an afternoon at the at the pool, you know, even if the forecast is perfect, um, you know, that doesn't mean you're really you know, that doesn't solve your problems. Uh, it can kind of can kind of create more problems than it solves. Um, but it's pretty strange to be able to predict the future. Um and um, you know, and and there are exciting moments, uh, you know, when um you know, um, in, in, in New York this time of year, we often have thunderstorms coming through in the afternoon. And so when my app says it's, you know, thunderstorms likely at, at 5.30 p.m., um, and um, sure enough, you know, thanks to this sort of broader, you know, this radar system that allows us to see over the horizon, um, you know, you start to start to make start to make decisions about that. Um, I will say though that um, that over the, the the years I spent working on this book, um, the worst days were uh, you know staring at my screen, you know struggling with these words, and then going out and getting caught in the rain because I forgot my umbrella. There's sort of nothing nothing worse than <laughs> than writing a book writing a book about weather forecasting and not paying attention to the weather forecast. So, what would you say are the biggest hurdles or problems that we need to overcome in terms of uh, improving the weather forecast or or get it getting it even better? I think the one thing we haven't talked about at all that that I think is really important is the 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 fact that that the the global observe observing system um, the is really a, 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 the result of global cooperation. Um, it's not owned by any one nation, um, but it really depends on the sort of diplomacy of the weather. Um, and you know the European um, weather satellites, you know, being sort of um, carefully lined up with the American weather satellites to to sort of cover the Earth at different periods of time, um, or even just the the observations that that are that are taken at surface level from all over the Earth and are are sort of pooled together very deliberately in a very designed system, sort of um, uh, operated and um, and dictated by the World Meteorological Organization, the UN organization. So when we you know when we talk about sort of what it takes to to improve forecasts, um, I think one of the 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 risks um, that is that we we begin to to back away from that global cooperation, that the new technology, the new observation technology, new, uh, new kinds of satellites, new kinds of observations from 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 mobile phones, um, the the risk is that they might come from from private companies, um, and we might sort of have a break with the 150 year old tradition of um, those observations being collected by governments 
for the express purpose of being shared um, globally, shared with, with other governments, with other weather services. So I think, you know, certainly more observations would do it. Um, but one of the challenges is collecting new observations and new types of observations uh, and making sure they're not, you know, the exclusive property of, of Google, you know, making sure that whoever is collecting these observations um, is incentivized to, to share them. So that's really interesting, actually. It's not something that is sort of often brought up as an example of, of global cooperation. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I suppose not. Uh, it's, I think, um, uh, one uh, one meteorologist, a woman um, uh, from Australia, former head, uh, head scientist at the Australian Bureau of Meteorology named Sue Barrell, she, she, she said to me that uh, recently that, um, that perhaps the, you know, the reason we sort of aren't as concerned about this ongoing global cooperation is because there haven't been any, any wars or battles to make it happen. Uh, you know, it, it really is a sort of 150-year-old tradition of global data exchange. And the meteorology community um, has done such a good job of sort of, you know, of keeping that ongoing um, that, you know, it, there hasn't sort of been a moment of, of crisis where we sort of had a chance to appreciate what we have. Uh, I have to say, unfortunately, um, it, I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, but uh, the, the current inclination um, in the United States uh, is, um, is towards a greater emphasis and allowing private companies to to do what they want, to, to collect more data and do what they want in the way that they sell it. Um, and so I think there is the chance that this issue will come to the fore over the next few years, that that particularly the the World Weather Watch, as it's called, the kind of global program that sort of emerged out of the the, the post-war era, was really um, sort of initially called for by, by, by President Kennedy uh, in a speech to the United Nations. Um, but there really is the risk that, that that begins to, the foundations of that begin to be eroded because the technological development is no longer the realm of governments, um, but is really the realm of these sort of, uh, you know, large international corporations. So do you think that um, allowing, you know, these private co corporations to have the sort of monopoly over weather data and not necessarily having any duty to the public to share that, do you think that puts people at risk? I, I think... Um, I think it it's interesting because the already the the systems that exist already are each you know year by year you know are, do a good job of putting fewer people at risk. Um, we saw this amazing example from uh, from May um, from the the cyclone in India um, that an equivalent cyclone twenty years ago killed tens of thousands of people. Um, it, with this cyclone, it was well enough predicted that authorities could make the the decision to to evacuate people, and and there were there were very few deaths, which was which was remarkable. Um, so I, I think the concern is less that it it puts people at risk and more that it makes a sort of two-tiered system of who has access to the best forecasts. Um, and I think um, I, those are kind of the same things and those obvi that obviously tracks sort of broader trends in the world today. Um, but I think, you know, particularly as we, um, as we enter an, uh, an era of more extreme weather, um, and I should say that it's extreme weather that the weather models are particularly good at predicting because, again, you know, unlike human meteorologists, they're not biased by the weather in the past. Um, they, they're able to, to sort of bite because they're based on the, the laws of physics. Sometimes they spit out crazy things uh, like it's, you know, it's going to rain 25 inches in Houston as it did last year in Texas. Um, and the human meteorologists say that's 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 impossible. That's never happened before. And the computer says, well, this, and this is going to happen. And in that case, you know, yes, it did happen. Um, so, you know, as we enter the, an era of more extreme weather, I think, um, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's obviously important that 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 the there's a, a sort of the, the global good of the system that's been developed is is 
evenly distributed. And I think that is the case at the moment. Um, but, um, you know, uh, it's it, it's not a foregone conclusion that we can keep that. I've been thinking a lot about the um, there's the famous um, uh, Benjamin Franklin line where where when when the Declaration of when the Constitution of the United States is written, somebody comes up and says, what kind of government do we have a, a democracy or a democracy or a republic? And he says a democracy if we can keep it. And it's the sort of if we can keep it idea that I think is really, you know, is really crucial at this moment in the in the technological and the diplomatic history of weather forecasting. Okay, thank you. Um, and just one last question. Um, so what would you recommend as the best forecast for individuals to use to check, say, will I need to take an umbrella today? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the, I mean, of course, it kind of depends, depends where you are. Um, it depends. Uh, and I, you know, in the, in the United States, um, I think that the, the weather underground, um, because it, it takes, um, it, it, it's system for, for collecting the model data and, um, and then adjusting it to your particular location, um, I, I think is, is, is one of the most sophisticated. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the, the Met Office, um, does this, does the same thing. Um, and so I think it, I think the most important thing is to look really closely, um, sort of look past the, the icons, you know, don't, you know, uh, often, um, you know, I think there still is a bit of a delay in, uh, in, in how much, um, meteorologists are, 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 um, are letting us trust the, the, how fine grained the outputs that they're getting are. Um, so when it says, you know, it, it, it's, you know, a 30% chance of rain at 3 PM and a 50% chance of rain at 4 PM and a 70% chance of rain at, at, uh, at, at, at 5 PM, um, you know, you can, you know, that, that, that's a pretty good clue of, of, of what's going to, of, of what's going to happen. Um, it's different from a 0% chance and a hundred percent chance, of course. Um, but I think we, we often, um, are, uh, we, the, the sort of the, the forecasts we're presented with are kind of smoothed out in a way. That was Andrew Bloom talking about how we predict the weather. His book, The Weather Machine, is out now. Come rain or shine, why not pick up a copy of BBC Science Focus magazine? It's packed full of features, news and interviews, and in this month's cover feature we discover how the dinosaurs could hold the key to staving off our own mass extinction. If you just can't wait to get a hold of a copy, then check out our many, many previous Science Focus podcast episodes, all of which are equally as interesting as this one. Let us know what you think with a review or a comment, it goes a long way to help get the podcast out there. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.